husband and wife were going to take a trip to Florida. They worked hard. They both had very high positions in their respective companies. They were very excited about Florida. They had their bags packed on Thursday night. Everything's ready to go the next morning early at the airport, fly down. The wife gets a call from her work. A major project that they'd been working on was in danger of falling apart, and they needed her to come in the next day and solve the problem. She was terribly disappointed. She so looked forward to this trip. And her husband said, don't worry. He said, I'll go to Florida tomorrow like we planned. I'll get everything set up. You go take care of your problem at work, and then you fly down the next day. We'll still have two weeks together on our vacation. So she went to work the next day. He flew to Florida. He rented the car, went and checked into the condo, got everything set. He sat down and sent her an email to let her know that everything was ready. Well, he picked the wrong address in his email uh, box, and he'd sent it to a friend of his whose wife's husband had just passed away two weeks, two weeks earlier. This woman read her email. She screamed, passed out cold right there on the floor. Her daughter was in the next room, heard the commotion, walked in, saw her mom laying on the floor, saw the email on the computer, so she sat down and read it. And the email said, my darling wife, just checked in. Everything is set for your arrival tomorrow. <laughs> Looking forward to being reunited with you again, signed your loving husband. P.S. It sure is hot down here. <laughs> We're going to talk about perspective today. <laughs> perspective. Or more accurately, developing and holding to godly perspectives over worldly opinions. Everyone has an opinion nowadays, but not everyone possesses godly perspectives. An opinion is a view or judgment formed about something not necessarily based on fact or knowledge. We have a lot of that passing for truth nowadays, don't we? Plus, opinions are no longer shared. Have you noticed this? They're screamed. They're shouted. They're accompanied by vulgarity and disrespect. Look at our political climate. There was a time when politics was, I don't know if honest would be a word we'd ever totally ascribe to politics, but there was a time where political debates, they were at least civil and they were intelligent, and they were respectful. But we don't see that anymore. The, the news people after the debate would discuss it and tell you who won. Now, the winner seems to be the loudest, most obnoxious one on the stage, is the winner. This is the climate we find ourselves in. We have enough opinions, we need more perspectives. Now, perspectives can oftentimes be very much like opinions. The two women in the story read the exact same email, but based on their current situations, they had very different reactions to it. How many of you are loving this weather right now? Not today, maybe, but it's sunny, it's warm, um, we have more daylight this time of year than we do other, any other time of year. It's great. You can spend all this time outside. Your perspective is that you love this weather. A farmer, however, might look at this weather, the same weather, with worry and frustration, because he needs rain for his crops to mature and produce what they should. He doesn't care if you get your yard mowed. He doesn't care if your picnic gets rained out. He doesn't care if you get to go to the pool on Saturday. He needs a good yield from his crops so he can pay his bills. So the farmer maybe doesn't appreciate this weather as much as you do. So when we talk about perspective today, I'm referring to godly perspective based on the truth of God's word, based on time, based on experience, based on spiritual maturity. Godly perspective can come over time 
or godly perspective can come immediately when you find yourself in a certain situation based on your relationship or your experience with God. So let's look at two people today who were probably bombarded with opinions, but who instead developed godly perspectives. In Mark chapter 5, verse 21, it says, When Jesus went back across to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him on the shore. A leader of the local synagogue, whose name was Jairus, came and fell down before him, pleading with him to heal his little daughter. She is about to die, he said in desperation. Please come and place your hands on her. Heal her so she can live. Jesus went with him, and the crowd thronged behind. And there was a woman in the crowd who had a hemorrhage for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal from many doctors through the years, and had spent everything she had to pay them, but she had gotten no better. In fact, she was worse. She had heard about Jesus, so she came up behind him through the crowd and touched the fringe of his robe. For she thought to herself, if I can just touch his clothing, I will be healed. Immediately the bleeding stopped, and she could feel that she had been healed. Jesus at once realized that healing power had gone out from him, so he turned around the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? His disciples said to him, All this crowd is pressing around you. How can you say, Who touched me? But he kept on looking around to see who had done it. Then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and told him what she had done. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. You have been healed. Now, more than likely, Jairus, and looking at the spelling of his name, I'm sure I'm pronouncing it wrong, but I've been doing it this way my whole life, so another 30, 40 minutes isn't going to hurt anything. All right? Jairus and the sick woman more than likely didn't even know each other existed. They probably had never seen each other before. They probably never saw each other after this. They didn't exchange addresses so they can keep in touch. But because of one brief moment in history, they're forever linked together. Verse 22 said Jairus was a leader of the local synagogue. He would have been, in our terms, what we call a layman whose responsibilities were mostly administrative, would have included such things as looking after the building, the security of the scrolls, possibly at times he supervised worship. He's most likely a respected man in the community, a dignified man. This was not the guy with the lampshade on his head at parties. He was not given to extreme emotional outbursts. But on this day, there's something different about this man. Verse 22 says, he came and fell down before him, him being Jesus. Now, as a leader of the local synagogue, it's possible also that Jairus may have been a proud man. He may have been an arrogant man. His attitude may have been like the Pharisee, who prayed, I thank you, God, that I am not a sinner like everyone else. Power corrupts, doesn't it? Power can corrupt good men. But this day is none of these. He may have been used to people bowing before him, but today he's laying on the ground in front of Jesus. He's a humble man today. He's a broken man. He's a desperate man. He's a man who realizes how helpless, how helpless he really is. A man who sees that in spite of his position, his status, and his power, he's absolutely powerless. All these things are useless to him right now. He's developed a new perspective about things. He came and fell down before Jesus. What position did this put him in? It put him squarely at the feet of Jesus. Who do we find at Jesus' feet? We don't find the proud there. We don't find the arrogant there. We don't find those who think we have no need there. We find the humble. We find the broken. We find a desperate father at the feet of Jesus. At the feet of Jesus, we find a grieving mother. 
In Mark 7, 25, it says, A woman came to him whose little girl was possessed by an evil spirit. She had heard about Jesus, and now she came and fell at his feet. She begged him to release her child from the demon's control. At the feet of Jesus, we find a sinful woman. In Luke 7:37, it says, A certain immoral woman heard he was there and brought a beautiful jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. At the feet of Jesus, we find a bereaved sister. John 11:32 says, When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell down at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. We find all this all these conditions, all these circumstances at the feet of Jesus. A desperate father, a grieving mother, a sinful woman, a bereaved sister. But the feet of Jesus is not just a place for desperate situations. It's a place for a seeker of the truth. It's a place for worshipers. The feet of Jesus is a place for anyone seeking relationship with Him. You don't have to have problems. It's a place where we should be every day of our lives, at the feet of Jesus. There's an old hymn some of you know, and some of you have probably never heard it. But the words say, setting at the feet of Jesus. Oh, what words I hear him say. Happy place, so near, so precious, may it find me there each day. Setting at the feet of Jesus, I would look upon the past. For his love has been so gracious, it has won my heart at last. Another verse says, setting at the feet of Jesus, where can mortal be more blessed? There I lay my sins and sorrows, and when weary, find sweet rest. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, there I love to weep and pray, while I from his fullness gather strength and comfort every day. If you live at the feet of Jesus, there are going to be those difficult times where in that position, we're weeping, we're grieving, we're sorrowing, we're desperate. There might be times where some we see something coming and we just don't know how we're gonna handle it. But in those times, I, I love the wording of this, of this verse, in those times, while we're there at his feet, in that condition, weeping, bereaved, whatever, while that is going on, and while we're pouring out that to him, at the same time, we are gathering from him strength and comfort for every day. This isn't a one-way communication where he just sits and listens and then he's gotta go off and do something else. Why we're in that state, and while we're pouring ourselves out to Him, at the very same time we're expressing our need, He's meeting the need with His comfort, with His grace, with His peace. The whole song speaks of relationship. When we have that kind of relationship, we don't have to run from somewhere else and fall at the feet of Jesus because we are already there. Psalm 91, 1 and 2 says, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge, my fortress, my God. In Him will I trust. When you dwell somewhere, that is the place where you live. That is the place where you are. That is the place where you can be found. It's not a place that's foreign to us. It's not a place that's unfamiliar to us. It's not a place we don't recognize. The feet of Jesus should never become a place we're unfamiliar with or uncomfortable with. Doug mentioned how the Bible if it sets on a shelf, it's never read, it's just a book. The feet of Jesus should never become a place to us as children of God that we're uncomfortable with, that we're unfamiliar with. I've told you this before, but it fits here. Um, my family, it was my mom and dad, me and my sister, were just the four of us. We were a very close family. 
but we were not an expressive family. We were not a demonstrative family. We didn't hug. We didn't tell each other, I love you every time I saw you. It was like we all knew it, and that was good enough. Okay, well, it was probably about 30 years ago, I started thinking about that. And I thought, you know, that's not good enough. It's just not. I felt that if, if life takes its natural course with parents preceding children in death, I did not want to stand looking down in a casket someday with feelings of guilt and feelings of regret. I knew there were going to be enough feelings that I was going to have to deal with at that time to not add those. So I decided to do something about it. Now, every Sunday after church, I would go up to my mom and dad's. They lived right on top of the hill here, and we'd spend the afternoon. And then it'd just be, bye, see you next week. Okay, I decided I'm going to start hugging my parents. And it was just like there was this wall between us. It was the most uncomfortable, the most, I didn't want to do it. I just wanted to run. I, I felt uncomfortable doing it. What are they going to think? In fact, later my mom was tell, asked me about that, and I explained it to her, and she said, yeah, your dad said to me, what, does he think we're dying or something? When, <laughs> when I started doing it. But I hugged my parents, and it was awful. It was so uncomfortable, but I kept doing it. And after a few weeks, I remember I'd be talking to dad. He'd be out by the car, and we'd be four feet apart, and then I'd move up a foot. Okay, I'm going to hug him. I'm going to leave now. And we talked some more, and I'd move up. We're two feet apart. Okay, I'm going to hug Dad. I'm going to leave now. Then I got up. We're about a foot apart, and just standing there talking. I just couldn't reach out. And finally, okay, love you. Bye. I did it. After about two months, it was perfectly normal. It felt so normal and so familiar and so natural. And I'm so glad I did it. And Dad would leave to go somewhere, and he'd go around the room, hug all of us and the grandkids and everything, you know, after a time. So... That shouldn't be something that, so I guess on a side note, if you don't do that with your parents, start or try to get to a point where you do, okay? But the feet of Jesus should never become a place that we're uncomfortable or unfamiliar with. In verse 23 says, Jairus came and fell at his feet, pleading with him to heal his little daughter. His daughter, even if I spent every waking moment at the feet of Jesus, I think this situation would cause me to be desperate too. I cannot imagine the thought of losing a child, much less be forced to deal with it. I, I just, I can't imagine what that must be like to go through. She's referred to as his little daughter. We know from Luke 8 that the girl is only 12 years old, and it's his only child. She's precious to him. In some ways, she's all he has, which only adds to his despair. He says to Jesus, she's about to die, he said in desperation. Please come and place your hands on her. Heal her that so, so that she can live. This is most likely an unlikely statement from a man in Jairus' position. The majority of religious leaders of the day wanted nothing to do with Jesus. They despised his teaching. They tried to think of ways to trick him into saying things so that they could accuse him. They even plotted to kill him. Yet he makes this great statement of faith, lay your hands on her so she can live. He was obviously aware of Jesus in his ministry. He'd heard about him. He saw, heard him about him. Possibly he saw him. Whatever, whatever the connection was, he knew what Jesus was capable of. Was Jairus the exception to the rule? A Jewish leader who followed Jesus and believed in him? Or was he just a man so desperate he was willing to try every, anything? We don't know. 
But in verse 24, it says, Jesus went with him, and the crowd thronged behind. Finally, there's some hope for Jairus. He found Jesus. He's got his attention. He's convinced him to come to his house and heal his daughter. Now everything's going to be okay. He's going to come. He's going to lay his hands on her. She's going to recover. They could get on with their lives. And then this woman has to come along and ruin everything for him. In verse 25, it says, There was a woman in the crowd who had a hemorrhage for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal from many doctors through the years and had spent everything she had to pay them, but she had gotten no better. In fact, she was worse. Let's think about this woman's condition for a moment. The King James Version says she had an issue of blood, period. That's all it said. This translation says she had a hemorrhage. That's all it said. But think about that. You've been hemorrhaging blood for 12 years. From a medical standpoint, she would not have been in good health at all. She was most likely anemic because of the loss of blood. Being anemic, she possibly suffered from one or all of these symptoms, including dizziness, nauseousness, fatigue, shortness of breath. If the condition was bad enough, it's even possible that her vital organs weren't receiving the oxygen that they needed to function right. But as bad as her physical condition was, her emotional condition would have been much worse. Because of the hemorrhage, she was considered unclean by Jewish law. That meant that she was not allowed to go to the temple like other people could go. It meant that anything she touched would also be unclean. The place she slept, unclean. The place she sat down, unclean. Anyone she touched would be considered unclean. If she had been married at one time, her husband most likely had left and divorced her because of her condition. She would have been an outcast in the neighborhood. Might as well have been a leper with the condition she had. She was lonely. She was rejected. She felt ashamed. She had no human contact. No kiss, no hug, not even a handshake. Maybe there was some kind soul who would stand across the street and talk to her from time to time. Maybe there wasn't. What a devastating picture of a human existence. This is not living. This is existing. We weren't made to exist. We were made to live. Verse 26 says she'd suffered a great deal from many doctors through the years and had spent everything she had. The physicians kept taking her money even though they couldn't do nothing for her. She had spent everything. She was broken mentally. She was broken physically. She was broken financially. She was exhausted in every way possible. She was poured out in every way possible. She was bankrupt in every way possible. And yet, in the midst of all of that, there was a spark of faith in her. Somehow, somewhere, she was wasted with disease and despair, but she was energized by hope. It said, verse 27, she had heard about Jesus. Now again, she hadn't been out and about. She hadn't witnessed his miracles. She hadn't had the chance to meet him, but somehow she had heard about him, and she knew he was the answer. She got rid of everyone's opinions in her mind, and she got herself a brand new perspective on what she needed to do. No more doctor's opinions. No more people telling her what she should do. She's got a new perspective. She's going to go see Jesus. In verse 27, it says, She came up behind him through the crowd and touched the fringe of his robe. This was a miracle in itself. In verse 21, it tells us that a large crowd gathered around him on the shore. Verse 24 says, Jesus went with him and the crowd thronged behind. The word throng means to compress to crowd in on all sides. 
One translation even says the crowds almost crushed him. She came up behind him through the crowd, through this mass of people pushing, shoving, pressing in around Jesus. There was no way over the crowd. There's no way under the crowd. There's no way around the crowd. So she went through the crowd. It would have been easier for her if she had been a leper. She could have rang her bell, shouted unclean a few times, and they departed like the Red Sea. And she could have walked straight up to him. But it didn't happen that way. She had to come through the crowd. In her weakened state, anemic, dizzy, nauseous, fatigued, short of breath, she begins to do some pushing and some shoving and some pulling of her own. And somehow she finds the strength. She finds the determination. She finds the will to push her way through the crowd and eventually finds herself right behind Jesus. Verse 28 in verse 27, she'd come up and touched his robe. 28, she said, for she thought to herself, if I can just touch his clothing, I will be healed. So she reaches out and touches him. What a demonstration of faith. It's on par with the leper in Matthew 8, 2. It says, suddenly a man with leprosy approached Jesus. He knelt before him worshiping. Lord, the man said, if you want to, you can make me well again. Her statement of faith is on par with the centurion in Romans 8.10. said, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come into my home. Just say the word from where you are, and my servant will be healed. Her demonstration on faith is on par with the blind men in Matthew 9, verse 27. It says, two blind men followed Jesus, shouting, Son of David, have mercy on us. They went right into the house where he was staying, and Jesus asked them, Do you believe I can make you see? Yes, Lord, they told him, we do. Great statements of faith. What a statement of faith from this woman. Everything she'd been through, all the rejection, all the despair, all the physical pain and discomfort. But if I can just touch him, if I can just touch him, I'll be made whole. Verse 29, immediately the bleeding stopped and she could feel that she had been healed. Not only had the bleeding stopped, I think everything went away at that moment. Later in the passage, Jesus says, your faith has made you well. The King James Version says, your faith has made you whole. She wouldn't have got rid of the one issue and still retained all the symptoms if she was whole. Her anemia, gone. Her dizziness, gone. Her nauseousness, gone. Her shortness of breath, gone. All the symptoms, gone. She's whole, she's well. The bleeding, gone. Everything gone because of her faith. In verse 30, Jesus realized at once that healing power had gone out from him. So he turned around the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? His disciples said to him, All this crowd is pressing around you. How can you ask who touched me? But he kept on looking around to see who had done it. He kept looking around. In Luke 8.46, Jesus said it's worded this way. He says, Someone deliberately touched me. This touch was deliberate. He had been touched and bumped and nudged and jostled all day long. Many thousands of touches probably. One touch somehow was different. One touch was different. One touch had purpose. One touch had determination. One touch had a woman's great faith attached to it. In verse 33, the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and told him what she had done. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. 
Go in peace. You have been healed. Now, by law, by the Jewish laws of the time, this woman's touch would have made Jesus unclean. But by grace, Jesus' power made her whole. He had power over the law, power over uncleanness. So she's healed. She's rejoicing. The people are marveling at what's just taken place and what they've just witnessed. And poor Jairus, standing there, probably just wants to kill her. She's interrupted his plans. She's interrupted what he needs. He had found Jesus. He persuaded him to come to his house and heal his daughter. They were on the way there. Everything was going to be okay. And then this woman has to stick her nose in his business with her little problem and threaten to blow up the whole thing. What is going through his mind right now? Anger? Frustration? Maybe a new sense of helplessness? Why couldn't she have just pulled this yesterday or tomorrow? Why couldn't she have just followed us home and talked to Jesus after I got what I want, after I got what I need? Why is Jesus looking around in this crowd trying to find one person, thousands of people, and you're wasting time looking for one person? Why can't this woman just tell the short version of her story and get to the point so we can get on our way? And then the worst thing possible happens. Verse 35 says, while he was still speaking to her, the messengers arrived from Jairus' home with the message, your daughter is dead. There's no use troubling the teacher now. A horrible situation just got horribly worse. When there was life, there was at least hope. There was hope that Jesus could come and heal her, but now he probably has no hope. All his hope is extinguished. His only child, his little girl, 12 years old, gone forever. Imagine the emptiness Imagine the devastation he must have felt right at that moment when those messengers come. But in verse 36, it says, Jesus ignored their comments, ignored their opinions. He said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just trust me. Words of comfort, words of hope. He ignored their comments. He was telling Jairus to ignore them also. In verse 39, Jesus went inside and spoke to the people. Why all this weeping commotion, he asked? The child isn't dead. She's only asleep. The crowd laughed at him, but he told them all to go outside. Then he took the girl's father and mother and his three disciples into the room where the girl was lying. Holding her hand, he said to her, Get up, little girl. And the girl who was 12 years old immediately stood up and walked around. Verse 41 says, Holding her hand, he reached out and took the girl by the hand. Now remember, this girl was already dead. Much like the touch of the unclean woman, him reaching out, according to Jewish custom, also, you touch a dead body, you are unclean. But he reaches out and takes the dead girl by the hand, and he brings her back to life. He wasn't concerned with touching death. He was only concerned with bringing life. This was a picture, I think, a glimpse of you will, of how he would deal with sin and death from the cross. He willingly reached out and touched the dead girl to bring her life. He willingly allowed sin and death to be placed on his shoulders on the cross to bring us life. The only difference is that through his death, burial, and resurrection, he didn't take death gently by the hand. He reached out and grabbed it by the throat, and he choked the life out of it. And as death gasped and wheezed its last tortured breath, Jesus looked at it and said, you are done here. Because he that were dead, 
He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. In this life we live, and then we die. In the kingdom of God, because of the work of the cross, we were dead, but now we live in Christ Jesus. So we have two very different people here. And if the worship team would come at this time. Two very different people. One was a leader in the synagogue. One was considered a nobody. One was influential and well-to-do. One was sick, broke, socially outcast. Two desperate situations. One has been suffering for 12 years. One is dying at 12 years of age. For both of them, there's no human remedy that can change the course of their lives. Jairus and the woman both found faith. Even in the midst of their situations, they both knew what the solution to their problem was. They knew that a touch of the master, however that touch took place, whatever the connection would be, they knew that his touch was the key. Whether they reached out to him or whether he reached out to them, the touch of the master was the key. Jesus, in his love and fairness, does not look at the condition of each one. He neither rebukes Jairus because of his position, nor does he despise the woman because of her poverty. He just rewards their faith. To one, he says, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. To another, he says, don't be afraid. Just trust me. Exactly what they needed to hear in those moments. The touch of the master, just one touch, is all it takes to change a life. And that's still true today. Just one touch of the master can change a situation, can change a life. A woman in faith reaches out, touches Jesus, and is never the same. A desperate dad asks Jesus to come touch his daughter. She's raised from death to life. One touch from Jesus can change everything. You ever heard a song called, He Saw It All? It says, the song says, I was working in town one afternoon attending some business affairs. I heard a commotion a couple streets over and wondered what's happening there. A young man came running from in that direction and he stopped just to catch his breath. I asked him to please tell me what was the hurry. He smiled up at me and he said, I was trying to catch the crippled man. Did he run past this way? He was running home to tell everyone what Jesus did today. And the mute man was telling myself and the deaf girl He's leaving to answer God's call. I know it's hard to believe, but if you don't trust me, ask the blind man. He saw it all. That's the touch of the master. The second verse of that song says, My friends, if the troubles and burdens you carry are heavy and dragging you down, you've tried everything you can possibly think of. There's no relief to be found. That very same Jesus that altered the future of the blind man, the deaf, and the lame is still reaching out in your hour of trouble. One touch, and you're never the same. Would you stand with me today? We talked about being at the feet of Jesus. I want to encourage you today. Put yourself in a position to be touched by Jesus. Live at his feet in relationship. Not just so he can touch you, but so that you can reach out and touch him. There's no situation you're facing that Jesus can't touch, that he can't change. Get rid of everyone's opinions today and walk in godly perspectives. Amen? So as you go today, I want you to consider this. The opinions of 10 men caused an entire generation to wander in the wilderness for 40 years and lose their inheritance. There's giants in the land. They're too big. We can't defeat them. The godly perspective of two men 
allowed them to eventually possess their inheritance. We are well able to go up and take the country, was their perspective. The opinion of the entire Israelite army was that Goliath was too big to fight. The opinion of David with a sling in his hand and five stones in his, not the opinion, the godly perspective of David with a sling in his hand and five stones in his pocket was that Goliath was too big to miss. Amen? Amen. Happy Father's Day, everyone. God bless you today.